Before we get started this week, we want to acknowledge that language around differences in sexual development is still evolving. As always, here at the Incubator, we strive to use language that is inclusive and respectful. Thank you. This is the Incubator and the Neonatology Review Podcast. We are your study buddies for neonatology topics. I'm Dr. Ben Korsha. And I'm Dr. Daphne Yasova Barbo. Welcome. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the podcast. It's Thursday. Daphne, how are you? I'm good. Same as yesterday. <laughs> Same as yesterday. That's good. <laughs> Stability is uh, very much underrated in the ICU, so why not? <laughs> okay, we're doing endocrinology question. I think it's our last day of endocrinology. Tomorrow we're doing thermoregulation. So, uh, yeah, let's, uh, let's go. Am I, am I asking you first? Mm-hmm. Okay, we're doing question 46. Daphne, which of the following statements is false about cryptoorchidism in premature male infants? Choice A. Approximately 90% of premature male infants with cryptoorchidism will have descended testes by nine months of age. <clears throat> Choice B, premature infants are more likely to require surgical correction of cryptoorchidism than term male infants. Choice C, risk factors associated with cryptoorchidism include small for gestational age, prenatal exposure to endocrine disruptors, including diethyl stilbestrol and pesticides. Choice D, Testes begin to descend through the inguinal canal at approximately 28 weeks of gestation. And choice E, the incidence of cryptoorganism is higher in preterm than term male infants. Okay, so again, a numbers question. 90% of descended testes by nine months. Maybe that's probably <laughs> that's probably true. Um, premature infants are more likely to require surgical correction. So I know that's false because um, I think premature infants are more likely to have cryptoorganism at birth, but um, they tend to descend eventually um, as opposed to term babies who have cryptoorganism at birth. Yeah, perfect. Yeah, that's the answer. I think that's, yeah, I think that's exactly right. That's the key. Um, they, they start off by having cryptorchidism and then, so technically you would think because they have a higher incidence of it right after birth, maybe they need more correction, but most of them end up having, um, the, 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 the descent of their testicles by nine to 12 months of age. So they don't end up requiring a ton more, uh, surgical correction. So that B is the answer. Premature infants are more likely to require surgical correction of cryptorchidism than term male infants. That is incorrect. Uh, the incidence of cryptorchidism is higher in preterm infants at approximately 30% compared to 3 to 6% in full-term infants. The risk factors associated with cryptorchidism include small for gestational age, uh, birth weight less than 2.5 kilos, and prenatal exposure to endocrine disruptors. Developmentally, the testes began to descend through the inguinal canal into the scrotum at approximately 28 weeks of gestation, and approximately 90% of preterm and 75% of full-term infants will have cryptoorchidism will have descended testes by nine months of age. Thus, term infants are more likely to require surgical correction than preterm infants. Yeah, I mean, they shouldn't even call it cryptoorchidism in the premature infant because Agreed. they're not undescended. They're just descending the way they're 
supposed to. That's right. That's absolutely right. <laughs> Anyways. Uh, question 50. Of the following, the most likely change in neonatal carbohydrate physiology soon after birth is a decrease in which of the following? A, catecholamines, uh, B, glucagon, C, glycogenolysis, D, insulin production, or E, ketogenesis? Okay. So the way I think about this question is I think the mother is this infinite supply of glucose to the fetus. Baby's born and that uh, sweet gig of just infusion of glucose stops right away mm -hmm. and the baby has to adapt very quickly. And so all the measures that the baby will take are a reflection of this sudden stop in glucose uh, infusion from the mother. So I'm assuming that the baby will try to compensate by doing a few things. Reducing insulin and ramping up anything that can make glucose. Mm -hmm. So that's mm -hmm. glucagon, glycogenolysis, gluconeogenesis, ketogenesis, and like lipolysis, anything that can make glucose is activated. And so in that answer, that series of answer choices, we have that a decrease in insulin production that is correct. Yeah, because you're looking for a decrease. Yeah. So that's that's exactly right. So um Basically, when that cycle is interrupted, the neonate accommodates by increasing glucagon levels three to five folds within minutes to birth to hours after birth. And if you look at the chart in the book, it's really um, the catecholamines and the glucagon uh, that really spikes. The neonate also decreases insulin production and rapidly um, increases, like you said, all of the other methods to get more substrate. So. Uh, break down glycogen, create glucose, break down the lipids in lipolysis, and then ketogenesis. Um, glucose concentration is lowest 30 to 90 minutes after birth and a full-term infant. And that's why when they check that first glucose at 30 minutes, it's frequently low. Um, right. In most babies, it will come up um, if we give them the recheck, time to please. do it, if they recheck it. Okay. Okay, I'm next. Mm -hmm. Question 52. You're called to the bedside of a two-week-old female infant who had been born at 33 weeks gestation. The infant is currently being treated with amphotericin B for a fungal infection. Ugh. The nurse has witnessed seizure activity. Upon your arrival, the seizure has stopped, but you observe that the infant is very irritable with tremors and hyperreflexia. She also has a weak respiratory effort. You ask the nurse to send blood for specific lab tests of the following. The most likely abnormality in this infant is choice A, hypercalcemia, choice B, hyperkalemia, choice C, hypernatremia, choice D, hypomagnesemia, choice E, hypophosphatemia. Okay, so... I did not know what electrolyte abnormality was related to amphotericin B, but fortunately they gave me a lot of the symptoms. So you needed to look for something that would cause irritability, tremors, hyperreflexia, and importantly, a weak respiratory effort. Um, so something that affects, you know, uh, muscles. Um, and so the only thing that I thought made sense was that it was hypomagnesemia. That's correct. Yeah. Um, the hypomagnesemia is the answer. So hypomagnesemia occurs when the serum concentration of magnesium falls below 1.6 milligram per deciliter. And usually you may not have symptoms until the level falls down below 1.2. 
the signs of hypomagnesemia are kind of the same as the one as hypocalcemia, which was kind of the trick part, tricky part okay. of this question. Okay. And in full disclosure, I was doing these questions so fast that I picked, I looked mm -hmm. for calcium, calcium. Yeah. and I picked the first one, which was hypercalcemia, only to realize then that it was hypercalcemia, mm -hmm. not hypocalcemia. So anyway... Um, but yeah, so the signs of hypomagnesemia and are similar to those of hypocalcemia, and they include irritability, tremors, and seizures. Uh, they can also include hyperreflexia, muscle weakness, and a prolonged QT interval. The cause of hypomagnesemia in a neonate includes uh, maternal magnesium deficiency, uh, malabsorption, chronic diarrhea, drug-induced, of which amphotericin is a cause, hypoparathyroidism, and perinatal depression. So yeah, I think... Uh, we right, it would have been an issue if hypocalcemia had been a choice as well. Yeah, I think the other interesting factor is like sometimes you think, okay, uh, like respiratory depression we see in hypermagnesemia, um, but this wasn't really. I guess it was respiratory depression, but that you can see weak respiratory effort in both hypermagnesemia and hypomagnesemia for different reasons. But I thought that was interesting. Okay, question 53. Um, a neonate presents with ambiguous external genitalia, hypertension, normal electrolytes, and increased deoxycorticosteroid, deoxycorticosteroid and deoxycortisol concentrations. What is the most appropriate management of this infant? So I'm going to read the answer choices um, without including any discussion about reconstructive surgery since um, there's an ongoing discussion about deferral of any of these cosmetic procedures. Um, is the answer A, glucocorticoid and mineralocorticoid replacement, B, glucocorticoid and mineralocorticoid replacement and salt supplementation, C, glucocorticoid replacement, D, mineralocorticoid replacement, or E, salt supplementation? So um, obviously the reconstructive surgery part yeah. is something we can talk about um, and that uh, that's, that's not like a mandatory um, yeah. And I, I think that's that discussion with parents and mm -hmm. talking to people who have had reconstruction surgery as infants. I mean, that discussion is, is very much changing. So let's, right. so let, the, the answer would be, they all say that, right. I think right. that's so all, we're not going to talk about that, no, we're not um, talk about, but, but you can still, mm -hmm. the answer would be kind of correct. If we look at the other medical management, right. so I think the key here is to realize that you have increased deoxycorticosterone and deoxycortisol, which we said, right. if you have that, that's an 11 beta hydroxylase deficiency. Right. And if you remember correctly, um, the key is, would you replace glucocorticoid and mineral corticoid or, or not? And the answer is you would not need to replace mineral corticoid because deoxy, uh, deoxycorticosterone and deoxycortisol are very good potent mineral corticoids. Mm -hmm. So you don't, mm -hmm. so you don't really need um, anything extra. But they obviously are not replacement for glucocorticoid. So you just would need to replace the glucocorticoid. And I think that's a very important feature of 11 beta hydroxylase deficiency. So again, putting aside the reconstructive surgery aspect of things. Um, you would not need, and, and right, and you would not expect salt, salt wasting and all that type of stuff in that specific right. scenario. So choice C makes sense with solely glucocorticoid replacement. Yeah. And I think even if you weren't sure, the baby has hypertension and normal electrolytes. So why would you give it mineralocorticoids? The other, I think, complicated thing to, to this um, question is that um, can, can 
DOC act at all as like a cortisol component and you you still have to give um, glucocorticoid. So like you said, this baby has 11 beta hydroxylase deficiency. It's the second most common cause of congenital adrenal hypoplasia. In this deficiency, 11-deoxycortisol cannot be converted to cortisol and deoxycorticosterone cannot be converted to corticosterone, resulting in cortisol and aldosterone deficiency. Um, and these infants have an increase in testosterone production, um, so the androgens through DHEA. Um, but they do not have salt wasting and they have hypertension because DOC functions as a mineralic corticoid. So glucocorticoid replacement is the right answer. And um, that's especially important because the glucocorticoid will do some feedback inhibition so that there's less androgen production. Um, so there's less virilization. Okay. Okay. Um, one more. One more question. 57. A term infant is born to parents who are expecting a male infant as the free fetal DNA analysis had identified an XY genotype. The infant's birth weight is 3,400 grams. Birth length is 50 centimeters. On examination, the neonatology fellow is concerned about, about a micropenis with a urethral meatus at the base. The infant's testes are palpable, palpable in the inguinal canal bilaterally. The father of the child is known to have a mutation in the DNA binding domain of the androgen receptor. Which lab test is most likely to have an abnormally high result for this infant? Choice A, cortisol. Choice E, follicle-stimulating hormone, FSH. Choice C, serum potassium. Choice D, serum sodium. Choice E, testosterone. So they told us basically that the dad has androgen insensitivity. Um, so this, this baby may also, and if that's true, you would expect those hormones, the stimulating hormones to be increased. Um, so this baby, I don't think has CAH. So the electrolytes and the cortisol are, you know, like red herrings. Um, so I would say testosterone. Okay, that is correct. So um, differences in sexual development may lead to ambiguous genitalia. Dihydrotestosterone drives the virilization process in both male and female fetuses. Under virilization, an infant with 46XY can be attributed to congenital adrenal hyperplasia, including a deficiency of 5-alpha reductase, which completes the final conversion, as you remember, from testosterone to active dihydrotestosterone. A mutation of the androgen receptor, as it is the case in the vignette, which is encoded on the X chromosome, can lead to a difference of sexual development, as is the case with this family. Lack of androgen signaling results in decreased virilization. In patients with AR mutations, testosterone is usually upregulated due to lack of gonadotropin-releasing hormone inhibition by testosterone. Therefore, testosterone levels are elevated. Patients with uh, androgen receptor mutations do not have any adrenal defects, and thus there's no reason why we should expect cortisol or electrolyte abnormalities. FSH elevations have been observed in some males with hypogonadism, but not specifically for males with AR mutation. The differences of sexual development can be due to chromosomal abnormalities assessed by karyotype. The most frequently observed abnormal karyotype in patients with these disorders are 45XO and 47XXY. 
affected infants are unlikely to present with ambiguous genitalia, but rather typically present with hypogonadism. Initial studies to evaluate an infant with ambiguous genitalia include electrolytes to monitor for salt wasting due to CAH, a karyotype, fish, and uh, for SRY um, mutations. At greater than 48 hours of life, serum levels of 17-hydroxyprogesterone, FSH, LH, testosterone, and estradiol are useful. Obviously, the management of these babies is multidisciplinary and should involve uh, a team that includes endocrinology. Uh, so, yeah, that's that's it. So, yeah, John. We made it. Made it. Thursday in the bag. Okay. See you, t- see you tomorrow. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Incubator and Neonatology Review Podcast. If you like our show, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. We would love to hear from you, so please feel free to reach out to Daphna and I via email by sending your messages to nicupodcast at gmail.com. You can also message the show on Twitter at NICUPodcast. Thanks again for listening and see you next time. This podcast is intended to be purely for entertainment and informational purposes and should not be construed as medical advice. If you have any medical concerns, please see your primary care practitioner. Thank you.